our study in the book of 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And we've got guys up that would love to bring you a Bible right to where you're sitting. You follow along with us. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. John writes, beginning in verse 14, he says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. The time I study this morning is the Christian life is dot, dot, dot. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word and in this place to hear from your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us. We thank you for this building you provided for us. We thank you for... Uh, just all the ministry that's going on in this place this morning, Lord. We thank you for the teachers that are downstairs and ministering to our kids, even at an early age, they're coming to know uh, their Lord and their Savior. And we thank you, Lord, for the youth that are downstairs. Speak to their hearts as well. And now, Lord, bless our time together as we focus in on your word and what you have for us this morning. Lord, if there's anyone here that has yet come into that saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, we also pray for them today, Lord, that they would see their need for him, and they return to your son this morning for, for faith in faith, Lord, and finding salvation. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Without question, the greatest life that there is, is the Christian life. But I think for many today, they're living a substandard Christian life. And that really is a, an oxymoron, is it not? I mean, if you're a Christian, it shouldn't be substandard. It's an oxymoron. We know what oxymorons are. You know, it's a term that contradicts itself, like jumbo shrimp or, uh, you know, genuine imitation or found missing, found missing, fresh frozen, you know. Greg Laurie uses this one, woman driver. Now, I would never say that. I mean, I may think that. I may not say that, but no. The bottom line is this. God has not called us to live a substandard Christian life. But sadly, in a sense, there are many who are failing to receive all that God has for them. I read an interesting article from pollster George Barna. He was speaking about the minimal impact that Christianity is having on our society today. And he has, he has said Christianity is having a minimal influence on thoughts, words, and deeds of people, especially under the age of 40. 
He says that his examination of a hundred indicators of attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors show that Christians were very similar to non-Christians in their everyday behavior. He said, he goes on to say, non-Christians expect Christians to differ in the religious realm. Man, I would ask as Christians, we should differ from every realm, not just the Christian realm, you know? We should not differ just because we show up in church on Sunday or we go to a midweek Bible study. We should differ in, in, our, in our way we conduct business at work. We should differ in, as we, the way we treat our husbands and wives differently. The way we raise our kids, the way we live should be different. We should have these different values. And yet the problem that we have facing today among Christians is that many believers are settling for a brand of Christianity that's not really biblical. At the very least, it's compromised. It embraces Jesus as Savior but neglects Him as Lord. It's big on self-esteem, but it's small on self-denial. It's huge on liberty, but very weak on holiness. See, we need to get back to the Christian life as presented in the New Testament. Not a a watered-down, anemic, you know, very liberal Christianity, but a very muscular Christianity. And so for that, I want to look at three things that the Christian life is this morning. That we know, that we can apply to our lives, so we can understand this is what it's all about. Number one, the Christian life is a prayerful life, we'll see. Number two, the Christian life is a holy life. And number three, the Christian life is the real life. Number one, the Christian life is a prayerful life. Look at verse 14 and 15. John writes, Now this is a confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. That word confidence there, it means freedom of speech. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we have access to the Father, we have freedom of speech in Jesus Christ, that we can come to the Father and we can ask Him, John says, according to His will, we know He will hear us. And since we know that, then we can be assured that whatever we ask, we will have. Now this is not positive confession that we see in some circles, just name it and claim it, and it's yours. Whatever you want, doesn't matter what it is, it's yours. That's not the way prayer should be in our lives. Chuck Swindoll uh, gives an illustration of this. He says, there's something exquisitely luxurious about room service in a hotel. All you have to do is pick up the phone and somebody is ready and waiting to bring you breakfast, lunch, dinner, chocolate, milkshake, whatever your heart desires as long as your stomach can tolerate it. He says, that's the concept that some of us have of prayer. We have created God in the image of a divine bellhop. Prayer, for us, is the ultimate in room service, wrought by direct dialing. Furthermore, no tipping, and everything is charged to that great credit card in the sky. He says, uh, now prayer is many things, but I'm pretty sure that's not one of the things that prayer is. I like what George Mueller says. He fed thousands of orphans just with food and provided just through prayer alone. He says this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it's laying hold of God's willingness. So John begins first here by saying here that first of all, God hears our prayers. I mean, you can go 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, God will hear your prayers. You know, it's not like voicemail today. Man, it's one of my pet peeves. You know, I call to get... A call, okay, I won't say the company, but you call AT&T, and it, it's, it's horrible, absolutely horrible. I mean, it's like, you know, okay, well, you have this problem, okay, well, hold on just a minute. Then, okay, you have to press this button, okay, well, hold on just a minute, and you got to go to this. And by the time you go, it's an hour before you get to someone to talk to. 
Aren't you glad that God is not the same way? You go to talk to God and it's like, hi, uh, this is heaven. God is not available right now. Press one if you need forgiveness. Two if you need, you know, prayer. Direction. Three if you need a healing. Press four if you have another problem. Thank you very much. No. Though sometimes from our perspective, it does seem that, that, that God does not answer in a way or in the timing that we desire. Listen, John is saying that's not, that doesn't mean that, that God is not listening. We know, John says, that he hears us. Now, we may not see the answer to that prayer immediately, but we have that inner confidence that God has answered. Now, that, again, doesn't always mean he'll answer yes. Sometimes God says no, and we have to accept that. And sometimes God says, you wait and see, because what I want to do in your life is something that's going to completely blow your mind. So keep praying, because I'm going to show you something. I mean, the Bible is, is full of pages of history that are filled with reports of answered prayer, blown away things that God has done in people's lives. Prayer, you see, keeps a Christian in the will of God. And living in the will of God keeps a Christian in that place of blessing and service and, and standing up for the Lord and being different from the world. See, we're not beggars, you know, coming to God. We're children coming to a wealthy father who loves his children and wants to give the best to his children. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock on the door shall be opened. I mean, if you were to translate that in the original language, uh, what Jesus is saying is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And the reason that is so important for us to know is that there are times when we pray about something twice, once, twice, maybe even three times, but if we don't receive that answer, at least in the affirmative, then we give up. We think, well, God must not be listening, and we stop praying. Maybe, maybe even to the point where you're not praying at all anymore. And you go, well, what's the use? And at that point, you're missing a key element to what the Christian is all about. It's about our communication with the Father, that relationship we have, our, our commune with the Father. That's why Jesus says, keep praying, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Because what we need to understand is when you pray, there is a spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes. Daniel chapter 10, a great, interesting story about that. Daniel is offering his request before God. And, and, and when he finally gets the answer, the angel comes to Daniel and says, Hey, I would have been here sooner. I was dispatched 21 days ago with the answer to your prayer. But I had a run with a demon. And, and I couldn't take him. But he was overcome by Michael the archangel. I love that story because what it shows to us is that there's a spiritual conflict that's waging behind the scenes when we pray. So it may be that you've asked God for something in your life that He wants to do, but just because it's not happened yet doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. His delays are not necessarily His denials, so keep praying. Now let me tell you this. There are certainly certain prayers that the devil is going to oppose more than other prayers. For example, when you pray for the salvation of a person, you need to know that there's a spiritual battle taking place. You need to understand that the last thing Satan wants to do is to release one of his captives. We're told in 2 Timothy 2.26 that, that those who don't know Christ are taken captive by him to do his will. See, the only way to, to free people from spiritual bondage is through prayer. That's why we need to pray. Pray that God would open up a person's eyes to see their need for Jesus Christ. Don't give up. But here's what we need to realize also when it comes to prayer. That there can be roadblocks that we place in our lives that hinder our prayer life. I mean, first of all, before we, we, become to, we, before we come to the throne of God in prayer, 
we need to make sure that our heart does not condemn us. That we're not living with some unconfessed sin in our lives. Remember John said in 1 John 3, 21 and 22, he says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. He said that because unconfessed sin, it's a serious obstacle to answered prayer in our lives. In other words, if you're practicing sin right now as a Christian, it can bring your prayer life to a screeching halt. I'm not saying you have to be sinless to pray. If that were the case, none of us could ever approach God in prayer. Uh, this is why John is saying in 1 John 2, 1, he says that, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have our, our mediator. Certainly the Bible makes allowances for sin in our lives and offers God's mercy and forgiveness to us. But unconfessed sin, man, that's a serious obstacle to answered prayer. And did you also know, men, that your relationship with your wife can be an obstacle to answered prayer? We're told in, in Peter, 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands... Likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So if you're not honoring your wife, you know, you're not loving her as Christ loved the church, you know, if you're not dwelling them with understanding, dwelling with them with understanding, you can hinder your prayer life. And then furthermore, we're told that, that your relationship with other people can be a hindrance in your prayer life. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 23, 24. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So there's roadblocks that can be placed in our lives. Unconfessed sin, your relationship in the family relationship, your husband and wife, you know, relationship with other people can hinder your prayer life. But if that's all good, you may say, great. Now I can ask for whatever I want and the Lord's going to give it to me. Not so fast. I have learned over the years, I've come to realize what you may really think that you want may not be the best thing for you. That's why our prayer life needs to be according to the will of God, God's will. It's been said that prayer is a mighty instrument not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting, getting God's will done on earth. Now, this is so important, especially if you're single and you're young and you're thinking about getting married. Oh, Lord, he's so cute, or she's so beautiful. And you do the Jericho march around their home. Oh, in Jesus' name, I claim her. I mean, she's the one for me. I mean, that's it. Oh, these walls are coming down yet. I tell you what, when you're talking about a life partner, you better end your prayer with, not my will, but yours be done. Why? Because God gives the best to those who leave the choice to him. Never, never be afraid of the will of God. Because there are times when we can only pray, not my will, but thine be done. Because we simply don't know the will of God in a situation or in a matter. But I would say most of the time we can figure it out. We can determine God's will through reading his word, through listening to his Holy Spirit, discerning the circumstances around us, having all of those three things lined up. We can rest assured that this is the will of God that you're praying for. And those, those prayers will be answered. Listen, there are many Many promises found in Scripture that, that is the will of God that you can claim in prayer. You know, we, we know Philippians 4.19, all of us, we, we probably prayed this many, many times, that my God shall supply all of my needs. You know, not greed, all of my needs. And if we're obeying His will and we really need something, God will supply it in His way and in His time. 
Now, you may say, well, if, if it's God's will for me to have a thing and provide for my needs, then why should I pray for it? I should just get it. You know, I don't need to. You know, that's kind of the spoiled child mentality. You know, I deserve everything. You know, it, it, it's an entitlement mentality. God wants that fellowship with him. He wants a communication with him. He wants us to ask him and to receive. But, but also, God wants us to recognize that the gifts that he's given to us, the promises that he's given to us, that they're precious. There's value behind the gifts. And he wants us to remember who the gift giver is. Take Philippians 4.19 again. Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need, but don't stop there. It's according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There is value in the gift because of the gift giver. God is going to bless me and he's going to supply everything I need because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Not because I deserve it, not because I think I'm entitled to it, but because I don't deserve it. And it's all about His grace through Jesus Christ, His Son. See, my prayer life is really the thermometer of my spiritual life, my walk with the Lord. So the Christian life is a prayerful life. I like the old hymn, we we don't sing it, but what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, and what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. It's a privilege to have the ability to, to pray, to have commune with our Heavenly Father. Prayer is the way God wants His children to get what they need. Uh, God not only ordains the end, but He ordains the means to the end through prayer. And the more you think about it, the more wonderful that arrangement becomes. So number one, the Christian life is a prayerful life. Point number two, the Christian life is a holy life. Look at verse 16 and 17. John says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin... now. He says, seeing a brother, not hearing about a brother, listening about someone talking about a brother or sister sinning in a sin. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask. And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, what is John talking about here? He says, there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Well, the answer, clear, it's simple. I'm not sure. I mean, notice the verse doesn't say what that sin unto death is. It'd be nice if it did. If a person sins unto death and this is the sin, then I don't think that's what it's saying. So we don't really know for sure what it is. Now, what we do know is that the issue is still the life of the believer. It's still our prayer life. And it's living a holy life. So here's what I think. I don't believe it's a specific sin. Rather, I think it's a kind of sin that kills. I believe the sin unto death is a continual rebellion against God. When a believer knows what he should do, when he or she is convicted of some sin in their life, yet refuses to turn from it, refuses to obey the Holy Spirit, and the word of God, then you're in danger of committing a sin unto death. Now, understand there's a difference between sin and willful sin. There's a difference between sinning, stumbling, being sorry for it, and turning uh, you know, from it, and continually, willfully, habitually sinning. In fact, the Bible says if you continually, willfully, habitually sin, then you are the father, the devil. Let me put it to you bluntly. If you're practicing a lifestyle or engaging in, in a practice of uh, that is forbidden in Scripture, you've got to wonder really if you're really a child of God. Because if you're sensing His conviction, and you know that something is not right, 
It's God's Holy Spirit who's lovingly trying to wake you up and to warn you the perilous path that you're on. It's going to lead to destruction. It's danger for you. It's danger for your family. The Bible tells us whom the Father loves, He chastens. Let me loosely paraphrase that. Whom God really loves, He spanks. Because He cares about you. And at times He needs to apply the board of education to your seat of understanding. Some of us from time to time may need a trip behind God's woodshed. But if that woodshed doesn't produce repentance, then that's where the danger comes in. Because I believe the Bible teaches that a believer can get so involved in a sin and not repent and they continue to rebel and rebel that God actually judges them by removing them from this earth. Because John is talking here to believers and he's saying that if you continue in your sin and don't repent but continue to rebel, then that will lead to death. Now, understand, this is something that's gone on in the past. We have Old Testament and New Testament to, to, to see instances. In the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron. Remember their story. Look at it on the screen, Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. They put uh, uh, coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. And this way they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different than he had commanded. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up and they died there right before the Lord. Or you think of Achan. Remember Achan, you know, people say, Achan, oh my Achan back because of his greed and trying to steal the riches and the coveting. He ultimately died. But then you move into the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. They were struck down. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 rather, warns about the concerning communion, warns about this concerning communion and not discerning the Lord's body not taking seriously the things of the Lord. He said this in 1 Corinthians 11.30, That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. The danger here is that, that we can become so deceived into justifying sin or thinking that, well, God's grace is so sufficient that you, that you keep on sinning and sinning that you're never going to have to face any repercussions from it. Or even worse, that you think that somehow God is just looking the other way. And, and this may go on and on, and yet you can't understand why in your life you're not sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit anymore. You can't understand in your life why you're not experiencing the joy of the Lord anymore. You can't in your life uh, why, understand why you're not experiencing the blessings of God anymore. Well, it's because you've been living a life set, you know, not set on the Lord. You've been living in sin. You've gone from living a holy set-apart life to a compromised life, not willing to turn. And in many believers' lives today, there's some sin that they keep on playing with, they keep on toying with. You know, it's kind of like, you know, fiddling with things. You know, it's kind of like maybe a slinky, you know, or a little bouncing ball. You got the ball, you're just kind of bouncing it and bouncing it and bouncing it. And, you know, this is what my thing is, this is the little sin I have, and it's not a big deal. And, and they continue to come to church. And, and the thing of it is, in many churches, they never speak on sin or, or that. And so they think in their heart that everything is fine. And yet God is saying, no, it's not fine. It's not fine. You need to deal with the sin. And the sad thing is, eventually the sin eats away at the believer's life and will eventually destroy them. Because continued rebellion against God in the life of the believer will lead to suffering and even death. That's not what the Christian life should be like. So there comes a point where John says in verse 16, there is sin leading to death. I do not say he should pray about that. 
So John here seems to be indicating that there are times when we should no longer pray for certain people. That's it. God's will is done. Now, perhaps he's referring to the Gnostics who have continually rejected the deity of Jesus Christ, continually rejected the, the, the free gift of salvation, have twisted scripture so much that John says, enough is enough, don't waste your time praying for them, let them run their course. Now, that may seem harsh, but we do know that there are times when we should no longer witness to certain people. The Bible talks about that. Remember concerning spiritual things, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Or Jeremiah 7, verse 16, God said, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear. We also know that in, uh, God spoke to Hosea concerning Ephraim, they, who Ephraim had grievously backslidden. Uh, and so it says there in Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. In other words, there's no longer need for any further warning, no need for further praying. Let him alone. Let the sin run its course. And it did. Now I can honestly say I've never had the Lord lay in my heart, you know, don't pray for that person anymore. There's no hope for them. You know, I hope I never hear those words. Because Christians sometimes involve themselves in sin, but Christians should not live a lifestyle of deliberate sin and disobedience. So the warning is there. Look at verse 18 and 19. John says, Now we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now let's keep this in context what we've already looked at. We've learned again that we're not talking about the occasional sin when we blow up, but rather this continual habitual practice of sin. No Christian is going to become sinless until we reach eternity. We should sin less. But again, this is the continual habitual practice of sin. We have a new nature. We have a new nature that God has given to us with new desires and new appetites that is not interested in sin. Our interests are to live a holy life, a set-apart life, a life no longer, you know, a life that, that, that looks like the life we had in this world. The life that we live now is a life that should be different from the world, where people can look at our lives and say, you know what, there's something different about you. Man, why don't you like to drink anymore? You were so much fun when we drank together. How come you don't like watching these certain movies anymore? I mean, or hanging out at certain places? Well, because I met Jesus Christ and He's changed my life. And, and, and now I want to live for Him completely. I no, no, no longer want to live a life of sin because Jesus saved me from that. I want to live a holy life. I want to live a life pleasing to Him. And I see the problem with that, and you know it as believers over the years, if you've been a Christian, there's a battle that goes on between that. Between the, you know, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the three enemies we face. In fact, we looked at this in chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And we see how easy it is in the culture that we're living in to, 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 to go after the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It makes it hard for us to keep our minds pure and our hearts true to God. Because we know that the world that we live in, verse 19 says, lies under the sway of the wicked one. Literally, you know what that means? It sits on Satan's lap. This whole world is sitting on Satan's lap. We know the Bible teaches that he's the prince of, the, of this world, the God of this age. He's the spirit who works in the children of disobedience. And here's the problem. Satan has many temptations, many traps that he's placed for you, for me, for the believer over the years to bring us back into that bondage of sin. 
back into that place of habitually practicing sin to destroy us. That's his desire. That's why we're so crucial to keep our guard up. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we face the world. We face the devil, what he throws at us. We also know that our own flesh can be our enemy. That old nature that we were born with, which still causes us to want to not live holy lives. It's true we have that new nature, but we don't always yield to that new nature. So how do we live this holy life? Again, let me tell you, it's not completely up to us. Look again at verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, at first it may sound like John is saying the believer keeps himself from sin, but that's not what the verse is saying. Yes, it's true. We as Christians must keep, must keep ourselves in the love of God, but it's not true that a Christian must depend on himself to overcome Satan, the flesh, or this world. In the age of uncertainty, we know that Jesus Christ keeps the believer so that the enemy cannot touch him. The wicked one does not touch him. That word touch could be translated, he cannot attach himself to that person. Jesus Christ keeps us. I think of the story of Peter. Remember when Jesus came up to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32, and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. I like that. Jesus says, you listen, this is what Satan's desire is for you. But don't worry about it. I prayed for you. And you know what? Jesus' prayer was answered. Peter's faith did not ultimately fail. And even though his courage failed, Peter was restored and became a mighty, effective soul winner. Listen, whenever we are attacked, whenever Satan tempts us, whenever, you know, things go on in our lives, you know, where Satan attacks us, be sure that God has given him permission. And if God has given him permission, he's also going to give us the power to overcome because God will never be permitted to be tested above our own strength. Let me say this very clearly. The devil cannot lay hold of a child of God. When you become a believer, no demon can ever enter your life and take you over. See, part of the good news is that we are out of the devil's clutches. Yeah, Satan's real. His demons are real. They'll distort. They'll pervert. They'll try to trip you up. But if you are a Christian, you can't say, well, the devil made me do it. The Bible says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Again, I want to say very carefully, the devil has no power over you beyond the power that you give him. When you don't resist. That's why James tells us in James 4, 7, and 8, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The phrase, flee from you, can be translated, he will run away from you. It doesn't say, you know, get into a shouting match with him. It doesn't say go into a deliverance service and have the demons cast out or go to some spiritual warfare conference where you can trace the the history of demons and so-called territorial spirits and bind them so God can work. It's very simple. Resist the devil and he must flee from you. He will flee from you. Very simple. When it comes to temptation and sin, you must not yield to it. You ever um, bounced a ball in the house when you were a kid? You ever have your mom or dad say, Stop bouncing that ball. I, I did it. My mom was always telling me to stop. 
probably because I was doing stuff I shouldn't be doing. But, but sure enough, I bounced the ball. Nothing wrong with bouncing the ball. And sure enough, you broke that figurine or you broke that, that vase or you broke whatever it is you broke. Listen, it's the same way in our spiritual life. We can't think, I can handle this. It's no big deal. Just kind of playing around with these sins. Not a big deal. Really? Famous last words. I mean, think of Samson. I've used this before, but he's a classic example of a guy who thought he could handle it. A guy who, man, killed Philistines at a drop of a hat. I mean, so when the devil wanted to bring Samson down, he thought, man, there's no way I can beat this guy, man. He's too strong. So the devil changed his tactics. Set his eyes on him in the bedroom. Brought him on his path a very attractive young woman named Delilah. Her name means delicate. She came to, to, to Samson very upfront with her intentions. She said, she said to him, tell me the secret of your strength so I might afflict you. Guys, if a girl ever says that to you, you don't want to get involved with a woman like that. That would have been the first clue that's not a healthy relationship. But Samson, you know, in, in his pride maybe, he thought, man, you know, you afflict me? I can bench press you, you know? What are you talking about afflict me? I could curl you with one arm. You know, little delicate Delilah. What are you going to do to me? What a joke. He played with it. Like a game, just bouncing that little ball until he took one way trip to Delilah's barbershop. He found out the hard way what happens when you play with sin. So you might think you can handle it, but, but it can get out of control. That's how temptation is. And you, you know, drug addicts don't become that way because they start out using heroin and cocaine. They start out smoking a little marijuana. Oh, I can handle this. I know when to stop. Most people don't become alcoholics because they, they started with, you know, drinking a, you know, a half gallon of bourbon. You know, they start out with a little glass of wine, a little beer, a little this, a little that. Oh, it's okay, you know. And you know the rest of the story. Don't play with this junk. Be careful. Keep your guard up. You see, you know what can happen. Don't mess around with these things. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. That's what we need to remember. See, John is calling us for a prayerful life. He's calling us to live holy lives. And finally, John wants to show us that the Christian life is the real life. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. I don't know if you've noticed, there's been so much in the news about fake news. You know, you can't believe any of these news channels anymore and, and you can't believe the media. But we as Christians... Listen, we have the real news. We have the good news. We have the true news. Jesus Christ is the true God. We know Him who is true, John says. And we are in Him who is true. I mean, Jesus Christ is the true light. We know that according to John 1, 9. Jesus Christ is the true bread, John six thirty two. He's the true vine, John 15, 1. He's truth itself, John 14, 6. And we have met the true God through His... Son, Jesus Christ, we are in contact with reality. We have the real thing. We hold in our hands, on our laps, the very Word of God that is true to help us live holy lives, set apart lives. See, it's all about our fellowship with God. A true Christian is one who has fellowship with God through prayer. One who resists the devil and lives lives that are holy. One who finds strength through the promises of God's Word because God's Word is true. It's a real thing because we serve the real God. This is the real life that God has for us. Again, John says he's given us his word. So as John says, we might know him who is true because we are in him who is true, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we know God and have eternal life. 
That's what the Christian life is all about. Everything else is only imitation. Our belief, our faith is in Jesus Christ. So often today people say, oh, you can believe in anything and you're going to be fine. All roads lead to heaven. It's no big deal. Just, just whatever you believe. They don't believe the truth. They say, oh, it makes no difference what a man believes as long as he's sincere. Really? Tell that to your pharmacist. I mean, I don't care what you believe about that drug. Here, take this one. Whatever, you know. Tell that to your surgeon. Makes all the difference in the world what you believe. There's a poem that goes like this. Shed a tear for Jimmy Brown. Poor Jimmy is no more. For what he thought was H2O was H2O-SO4. H2O is water. H2SO4 is sulfuric acid. <laughs> Listen, in this world where there's so much confusion about life, so many lies, so many you know, untruths, we can know that the Christian life is the real life. That Jesus Christ is real. He is the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except through Him. Finally, John adds one more little but powerful statement. Remember, he's 90 years old. He's summing up his whole letter here. And he says, this is what it boils down to. Look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. It's like this. P.S. Oh yeah. By the way, listen up here. Now, at first, it might seem like it's out of sync with the rest of the book, but I think it's very in sync with what he has taught throughout all of 1 John. Because I think the idols that he's referring to here is not, you know, like your superhero, you know, a movie star, sports hero. Remember, this entire epistle is written in response to those who embrace and propagate the spirit of Gnosticism. You know, that they knew, they knew this, and they had the deeper life club, so to speak. And all throughout John's, John's epistle, he said, we know, we know, we know. So I think he's coming against his Gnosticism. And basically the idol here, Gnosticism can be seen in anyone who worships his own concept of Christ and anyone who idolizes his own intellectual theology about God. It becomes an idol. And what happens is it always pulls you away from the body of Christ. Yet for us, an idol can be anything that takes place of that relationship that we have with God. See, every one of us, we're passionate about Something. Some people are they're passionate about clothes. Some people are passionate about sports. About about some people are passionate about you know Kansas City winning the, the football game tonight. You know we're passionate about passionate about passionate about golf or tennis or checkers. Some people are passionate about computers. Some people are passionate about cars, about careers, other things in life. But listen, that area can become so important to them that they eat, they drink, and they breathe it. That can essentially become their god. Again, an idol can be anything that takes the place of God in your life. So let me ask this as we close. Is there something right now that is more important in your life than Jesus Christ? Let me rephrase it. Is there something in your life right now that if God were to ask you to give it up, would you be unwilling to do so? If so, that could very very well be an idol. Not because God wants that thing. He wants your heart. And if that thing, if that pursuit, if that possession, or whatever it might be, could get in the way of your relationship with Him... That can be an idol. So do you have an idol in your life right now? Maybe, maybe it's a relationship with someone that's more important to you than your relationship with God. That relationship is keeping you away from God. You know, I think, you know, especially the beginning of a new year, I think it's always good to, to, to go back to what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path 
of everlasting life. To say, Lord, I don't know. I want a fresh start. I don't know if there's anything in my life that's an idol in my life, but Lord, I want to open my heart to you. And if there's something that that has taken the place in my life, then Lord, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Show me what it is. And I believe that God will respond to a prayer like that. I mean, that's God's will. You know, and, and it's modeled by the verse we just quoted. Finally, I want to close with this story. A pastor went down to Haiti to share the gospel. Many people showed up. It was a large crowd. There was a conference going on. The pastor was giving what he thought was a pretty good altar call. The problem was that, as he said, if you want to receive Christ, come forward. Well, the people got up and they turned and they walked in the opposite direction. And the pastor, he couldn't understand what was going on. Well, the translator ended the service rather abruptly and the pastor was quite perplexed. He says, What's going on? The translator said, well, just wait until tomorrow. Well, the next day, the people came to the conference, but they brought with them all of their voodoo junk with them. The translator then said to the pastor, these people have taken all of their idols out of their homes, dug them up out of the ground, and now they want to smash them in front of you and give their life to Christ. See, they didn't want to give their life to Christ until they had first thrown away their foreign gods. And that doesn't mean... If you receive Christ, that you have to first go and, and, and turn away from your sin. That's not what it's saying. You, you just believe, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God doesn't work in your life. But the point that I'm making is that they wanted to get rid of those things that were in their lives. They, If God has shown you there are things in your life that shouldn't be there, little children, keep yourself from idols. Uh, see, the will of God is for us not to continue. Send something that, that the Spirit of God is fully epistle. I've, I've enjoyed it today. You know, it's amazing to me that, that how God speaks to our